There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. I was thinking about the song on my porch this morning, and I added a verse. There's no suffering you won't take, no sacrifice you won't make, coming after me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Yes, Maple Grove, God's love for you and for me, for everybody in this room, for everybody that you will lock eyes on this week, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty insane. You might say it's reckless. And I just want to ask you, are you grateful for that love this morning? Are you grateful for God's love this morning? Are you grateful for that love? Are you grateful? Are you really? I mean, it's reckless. It's absolutely incredible. No suffering you won't take. No sacrifice you won't make. And listen, there's no place that this crazy love of God is more powerfully demonstrated than on the cross. Especially when we consider who it was that Jesus was dying for. In Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Heavenly Father, what an honor and a privilege to be in your presence. Father, I, I pray, God, that your love that's unfailing, that's unquenchable, that's unstoppable, God, I pray, God, that it will overwhelm us, Lord, that we'll be grateful for it, God. God, forgive us for taking your, your love for granted. May we celebrate that love. May we live not for that love, but from that love. And Father God, I, I pray that as we study your word today, God, that you open our minds and hearts and that your word accomplishes everything you desire and all the purpose for which you send it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is it. Our, our final conversation in Understanding the Bible, week 10. And I got to tell you, this has been a fun, challenging, and rewarding study. Amen? Amen. Now, I'd like to give you a heads up where we're going um, in the next few weeks. Uh, next weekend is Labor Day weekend, and I'm going to do a, a message just simply called, Your Work Matters. And I, I'm going to be talking about how what you do during the week, you know, whether it's an office or a classroom, whether it's UVA or DIA, right, whether it's in a nursing home, whether it's on a selling cars, whatever it is, that your work matters and that your work is important and it's important to God. And, and, and then on the 9th, we're going to kick off a four-week study called Words Have Power. 
And they really do, don't they? I, I want you to look three people in the eyes and tell them, your words have power. Your words have power. And again, it's just a four-week series, and the titles are The Ninth, The Power of Words, 16th, Out of the Overflow, uh, on the 30th, Speak Life, and the October 7th, uh, Truth and Love. Like I said, this is the final conversation in our series, Understanding the Bible, and I think it's a good idea to remind you guys of the, the goals that we set out when we launched this journey back in June. Here's our first goal. To take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates, contrary to the onslaughts of modern culture, that the Bible is not just another book or mere ink on paper, but that it really is from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And this goal was accomplished as we spent five weeks talking about exciting things, right? Like canonization, the transmission of the text. And as we saw that the Bible is unique, that it's in a class of its own, there's no book like it, as we saw that the Bible is accurate, it's accurate historically, it's accurate in its text, we saw that the Bible, it's supernatural, it knows some stuff that that only God could know, like future events and pre-scientific knowledge. And, And as we saw how despite the fact that the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 plus writers living on three different continents and three different languages, yet it still has one simple unifying theme throughout, the coming of Christ. And listen, if you need to be more confident that the book on your phone or on your bookshelf is from God, I encourage you to check out those messages. They're online, our website, podcast, Facebook Live. They're all there for you. Goal number two was this. Motivate, encourage, challenge, and inspire people to read the Bible like never before because it is from God. And because in this series, they will be given tools and principles that will equip them to understand the Bible better. And we've been attacking this goal since July 29th by talking about some principles of hermeneutics, right? That simply means understanding and interpreting the Bible. And I just got to tell you guys, I've been really encouraged by the hunger for God's word and understand it better that I see building among many in this room. You know, when I, when I started the series, I thought, you know, this is going to be so stinking boring. I, I, it, no one's going to like it. And I've got so many positive comments, not because of what I'm saying, but because you're realizing that this book you hold is something you can read and understand and that can and will change your lives. And so far, we talked about the principle of aim. Understand, aim is your, is your goal when you're studying the Bible. And your aim is to figure out what the author's intended meaning, right? The author's intended meaning. The text means what the author meant it to say, not necessarily what you think or want it to say. And then we talked about the principle of context. And when it comes to hermeneutics, context is what? Context is what? It's king, right? And that means it must rule over our understanding of any biblical text. And understand, when we take a verse out of its context, out of its God-inspired context, we lose the power, the truth, and the spiritual authority of what is being said. 
And then we talked about the principle of observation. And this is a principle where, like, you know, studying the Bible, you're like, you're like a detective. You know, you have your notebook in your hands, you're asking a lot of questions, and you're looking for clues as to what the passage means. And then we talked about the principle of genre. The Bible has all kinds of different genre. Wisdom, poetry, historical narrative, prophecy, law, gospels, the epistles. And we have to interpret a passage of scripture in light of the genre it was written in or else we could get it wrong. Like this passage here in Psalm 51 verse 5. It's from David. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now this is in the genre of poetry. Some have understood it outside that genre and, and use this as a proof text for the teaching about original sin that a baby is born guilty of sin. Now, when David was confronted with the sin with Bathsheba, which is the context for Psalm 51, the sin of adultery, do you think he said, wow, what a great opportunity for me to do a theological teaching on the original sin? Or do you think he grabbed a pen and just said, you know, this is how bad I felt about my sin, right? Hyperbole, right? I was sinful at birth. We do the same thing, right? I never do anything right. Really? Never? By the way, husbands, never use never always, right? <laughs> You're gonna, it, it, it never works out. That's the only never that you can actually use. And, and uh, here's some, check out these passages. They're, they're from the genre of wisdom. And wisdom literature is basically explaining this is how things usually work out in life. They are, they are probabilities, not promises. Like Proverbs 15:1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, Proverbs 16:3, commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. Proverbs 22:16, train a child in the way he should go; when he's old, he will not depart from it. Remember, this is genre poetry. Not prophecy, not thus saith the Lord. I don't know about you, there's sometimes I've used a, a gentle answer and it did not turn away wrath, right? It just didn't. And there's some things, I don't know about you, that I, I've really committed, hey God, this is for you, and it didn't really work out the way that I maybe wanted it to. And I know some people who have trained the child in the way he should go, and guess what? They departed and they did not come back, right? Yeah, it happens, happened to God. He was the father of Israel, right? And I think he did a pretty, he did, if they're a good, a good father, and a father could train his children right to be God, and yet the nation turned away. Again, when you interpret outside a genre, you can get really, really messed up. Well, that's where we've been. And this morning, in a conversation I'm calling More Principles and TWBIA, we're going to unpack the fallen principles, so buckle up. Um, the principle of consistency, of figurative language, of progressive revelation, of caution, a priority, the principle of application, and the principle of obedience, which is T-Y-B-I-A. All right, let's do this. Principle of consistency. You guys ready? This is good stuff right here. And this is where you ask yourself, if your understanding of a particular passage is consistent with what other passages of scriptures teach. And there's two things to keep in mind when uh, we're talking about the principle of consistency. Number one, if your interpretation of a verse, especially an obscure one, contradicts clear teaching elsewhere, then your interpretation is most likely what? Wrong. 
In other words, obscure texts and unclear texts are to be interpreted in light of clear texts on the same subject, right? If they're obscure or unclear, you use clear texts to understand them. Get it? Good. And listen, when there are no other texts that you can compare uh, obscure texts to, try to put the simplest possible meaning on the words. Keep in mind, it's like the philosophy of Occam's razor, right? Which is a problem-solving principle attributed to William of Occam in the 14th century that says this, the simplest solution is usually the right one, right? And note also that it's unwise to build core doctrines based on your interpretation of an obscure text. Again, especially if they contradict clear teaching elsewhere. For example, some have built an elaborate doctrine based on this obscure, kind of hard to understand text you may have heard of in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And based on this one verse, this group has adopted for 100 plus years the practice of being baptized for someone who's already died. And this is from their own website. Jesus taught that baptism is necessary for you and for anyone who has ever lived to receive salvation. But there's some people who have never had the chance to get baptized while they were alive. God is merciful and wants all children to receive the blessing of baptism. And that is why we perform baptisms for the dead. During a baptism for the dead, a living worthy member is baptized on behalf of someone who's already died. This sacred ordinance includes full immersion in water, just as baptism is performed for a living person. Anyone who is at least 12 years old and is worthy can be baptized for those who have died. And again, there's no other place in all of Scripture that you see people being baptized for people who are dead. And not only that, this, that understanding contradicts clear teaching elsewhere about the gospel, right? Where the gospel talks about personal faith and personal repentance, right? And a personal decision. And the gospel teaches, Hebrew writer says that it's appointed to man once to die and then to face the judgment, right? So, so what is Paul teaching here, right? Well, remember, let's ask the king, right? Context. And understand, all of 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's powerful defense of the resurrection of Christ, And he's responding to a spirit of skepticism that came in the Corinthian church that there is no such thing as a resurrection. And he's also heard about that there are some people that are baptizing people for those who have already died. And so Paul is like, okay, and Paul is a master debater. He says, all right, this is what you believe, that Jesus, there is no resurrection. Okay, but have you considered the implications of this? And then Paul begins his argument. Okay, if there's no resurrection, then that means that Jesus never rose from the dead. And if Jesus never rose from the dead, that means that you are still lost in your sins. And if this is true, then all those who have fallen asleep have perished. The dead are dead. We'll never see them again. It's all over. And and Paul is using an argument, a a form of argument called ad hominem. Hominem. Is that how you say it? And and basically, that's where you... 
you, you go to the other person's sides and you show the inconsistency in their point of view. And, and what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 29, he's saying, hey, hey there, there's some of you out there baptizing people for the dead, but if there is no resurrection, what are you doing that for, right? He's showing the folly of denying the resurrection while teaching a doctrine that depends on the resurrection to actually have happened. And Paul in no way is endorsing the practice of baptism by proxy, right? Not at all, right? So can you see where context is king? A principle of consistency is vital to understanding the Bible, right? You know, does it contradict clear verses elsewhere? Uh, a second thing to keep in mind is that no verse can mean less than what it says, but it can mean more in light of other scripture. For example, Acts 16, 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Now, in this verse, we see that belief is connected to our salvation. And, and that verse cannot mean less than what it says, right? 1 Peter three twenty one. Now, Peter's comparing baptism to the floods um, that saved the world during Noah's day. And this water, the water of the flood, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this verse says that there's a connection of baptism to our salvation, and, and it cannot mean less than what it says. However, both verses can mean more because we know in other scriptures, right, our salvation is connected to our repentance, Right? Our desire to turn from our sins and being the boss of our life and allowing God to be the boss. And our salvation is connected to our willingness to confess that Jesus is Lord before men. And all those together give us the full and complete picture of our salvation. So no verse can mean less than what it says, right? I mean, if it, less, less what it, if it means less than what it says, let's grab a Sharpie and just mark it out, right? Well, it doesn't really mean what it says. Well, it has to mean what it says, but it can mean more in light of other scripture. That's consistency. Principle of figurative language is next. Bible's full of figurative language, right? And that's a word or phrase that is used to communicate something other than its literal meaning. And it shouldn't surprise us the Bible uses figurative language because the Bible is language and language is full of figurative language, right? We use it all the time. If I told you once, I told you a thousand times, right? Don't let the cat out of the bag. How do you get in the bag? What's he doing in the bag? How big is the bag? Can he breathe in the bag? Okay. I heard it straight from the horse's mouth. It's raining cats and dogs. Okay. Now, now what are those truths communicating? Not the literal meaning of the words. They're communicating, hey, I told you a lot of times and you ain't getting it yet, right? Uh, hey, you know, keep this to yourself. <laughs> Don't spread this around. Mum's the word on the down low. Hey, this is good intel. You can trust it. It's really raining hard outside, okay? Get figurative language. Here's some reasons why the Bible uses figurative language. It, it, it adds rich, richness to language, right? The Lord is my, my rock. It, it attracts special attention. The tongue is like a fire. It, it, it makes abstract ideas more concrete, like God's care and compassion. Deuteronomy 33, 27. I love this verse. Deuteronomy 33, 27. The eternal God is your refuge, and his everlasting arms are under you. What a picture. It aids memorization, right? Right? It helps me to memorize, 
you know, Isaiah 40, 31, right? Those who trust or those who hope in the Lord are like what? Or will soar on wings like what? Like eagles, right? They, they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It, it also abbreviates an idea of putting great truths in a powerful package, right? The Lord is my shepherd, right? Not a lot of words, but man, there's a lot crammed in there. It encourages reflection. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. And you picture that tree. What does it look like? Is it dead or is it thriving? Again, figure of language is a word or phrase that is used to communicate something other than its literal meaning. However, the truth it communicates is literal. The tongue is destructive. God is a place of refuge and security. God's care really is powerful and yet tender. And trusting in the Lord really does help sustain us and to give us strength. Next, the principle of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his, by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Question, who do you think has more authority when it comes to Scripture? The prophets or the Son? And, and, and who do you think spoke with a greater and more fuller understanding of the revelation of God, the prophets or the Son? And, and, and here's what I'm trying to say, that we interpret the Old Testament, and the word Testament just means covenant, the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We, we interpret the lower in light of the higher. The incomplete in light of the complete. The shadow in light of the reality. The promises in light of their fulfillment in Christ and in his church. In other words, you know, the New Testament is the hermeneutical norm. Like if Jesus, Mark, Luke, Matthew, John, Peter, or Paul say, this is what an Old Testament Promise or prophecy means, guess what? That's what it means, right? That's what it means. Again, we interpret the old in light of the new. The principle of caution. And I do want to remind you that, that I gave information like of where you guys can go online and take college courses on this stuff, right? I mean... I could speak so long on all this stuff, right? I'm really trying to introduce these ideas to you, right? To help you understand, right? You interpret the old in light of the new. Here's the principle of caution. This is kind of, I don't know if I make this one up or not, but I think it's true. Is the diet of a newborn baby any different than the diet of a 24-year-old? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Because there's certain things that, you know, a newborn can't eat, right? You know, I, I, I've had a few kids and, you know, I, I didn't like throw a steak on the table, right? Say, like, have at it, right? You know, here's another question. Can something we eat ever mess us up? 
Ask me someday about my food poisoning in China, right? All I'll say, I was in a five-star hotel in that little room having all kinds of trouble, and the guy in the little white jacket was going, ooh, ooh. <laughs> and I was hopping on a plane to fly to Guangzhou you know, with my, my new daughter, and uh, it was not a good scene laying in the Beijing airport. I didn't care. I'm laying on the floor. I wasn't doing well. The food poisoning. And here's what I'm getting with this. See, there's something that scares me as much as, as people not reading and studying the Bible. It's people just eating anything that's out there, right? Anything they find in a book, hear from a teacher, hear at a conference. Guys, you need to be careful what you eat. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world, right? Careful what you eat. If you're new to Bible or Bible study, you know, don't start in Daniel and Revelation. Start in Mark and in John and James and Ephesians and and Genesis, right? You know, and and I got to be honest with you. when I was a new believer, I, I was extremely cautious of what I ate, right? Because I, I grew up and didn't go to church, but heard enough things, and some of the things I heard were wrong. And, and I believed them because, like, a, a guy told me them, and he stood up front. And, and, and so I was very cautious. I was very cautious with what I ate, right? Just like a baby, right? You put those things on the cabinets, right? Some of us adults have a hard time, right? How do I get in that cabinet, right? Because, yeah, that green fluid looks good, <laughs> you know, but guess what? You drink that, it's not going to go very well at all, right? You know, and so be careful what you eat. In my email this week, I'm going to send out, hey, here's some good books you, you can eat that I, that I trust and you may want to check out and maybe some good websites where you can find, you know, some solid food to begin to build up your, your, your faith. Um, and you could, if you're not on the email, you can sign up on your connection card. Uh, the principal priority. For what I receive, I pass on to you as a first importance Jesus died for our sins according to scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And what he's saying in that verse, right, is that there's some things of first importance, right, that death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance. You see, the Bible is not all flat landscape. Uh, there's a great variety of, of, of contour and geography. We have mountain peaks and ridges and valleys, and though every word in the Bible is important, they're not equally important. And though every text contributes to the whole, not every text is of equal weight. For example, the Apostle Paul talked about women wearing jewelry and the resurrection of Jesus, right? It, it, is one of those more important? You know, I mean, it, it, if we get jewelry wrong, that's one thing, right? We get the resurrection of Jesus wrong, that's an entirely different matter, right? Now, that does not mean that those parts of the Bible have no value, right? Like, I have three bills in my pocket. I got a $1 bill, a $5 bill, and a $10 bill, right? Are they of equal value? No, right? But they all have some value, right? I mean, the $1 bill has some value. And see, a wise Bible student, right, We'll focus more on the $10 verses, right? And, and, and we'll focus on the majors and not get caught up majoring in the, in the minors. And the Pharisees did that all the time. Check this out. What are you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? 
You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you, here comes a figurative language, strain out of that, but swallow a camel, right? Figurative language, right? Funny picture, too, right? You got these guys are, I don't want to swallow this gnat while a camel, right, is being crammed down their throat, right? Jesus had a great sense of humor. And if we're careful, if we're not careful, we'll be just like them, right? We're going to strain out a gnat and we're going to swallow a camel. We're going to spend all our time and energy focusing on, 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 the, on things of minor value and neglecting the things of higher value and greater value to God that he talks about all through the Bible. Things like love. Love God. Love your neighbor. Things like faith and humility and compassion and forgiveness and service and giving and sharing of our faith. Amen. How about you? I swallowed a few camels in my time. Have you? <laughs> they don't go down very easy. Next, the principle of application. Okay. Here's, here's, a, here's a chart right here. We're going to, I think, here's a chart we're going to explain. And it's in your notes. And, and, and we're going to unpack that chart in just a minute. But I, I, I want to say a few things about application. And, and come together right now over me. Okay. This is, this, you got to be here. You got to tune in. Sorry. <laughs> The goal of application is to take a text written to a specific group of people in a certain place facing a particular situation and use that text to deal with contemporary issues in our life and time. Exegesis pulls principles from the text while application places those principles in a modern context. In other words, we draw from a time-bound text a timeless truth for a timely situation, all right? And let's, let's go back to that chart. So, so if we have a specific command and we have a similar situation, right, then we can go right ahead and apply that text to our lives, right? Right? Because they still apply, like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? Um, today we still have husbands, we still have wives, right? You can apply that to your life, right, directly. Here, here's another one, Matthew 18, 15. If someone sins against you, you need to first go to that person privately, right? Uh, do people still sin against you today, right? Still happens, right? Still relevant, right? So what do we do? We go to that person directly. And I'll tell you right now that if, if churches would follow this, there would be so much less division in the church. Amen? Right? Man, we got to stop talking about people and start talking to people. Amen? Amen. Right? Amen. It's a sin. Right? Children obey your parents. Right? Specific command. Are there still children and parents today? Right? There still are. Right? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. There are still fathers and children today. And instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. A direct command. Um, Colossians 3.13. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Do people still have faults today? <laughs> Do people still offend you today? Right? Specific command. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you should think about forgiving others if they beg you really hard and you wait 20 years. No. You must forgive them now. 
Do not, Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. How'd your mouth do this week? At home, at work, with your husband, with your wife, with your kids, with your parents. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, right? Are people still talking today? <laughs> uh, do people still need to be built up today? Do people still have needs today? Absolutely. Specific command, specific text, okay? Now, if you have a dissimilar situation, it's different. That's when we have to do a little bit of work and say, hey, what is the principle underneath that specific command? What's the general principle? I'll do two easy ones. They're harder ones we can do some other time, like in a Bible study. Um, Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss, okay? If we started doing that next Sunday, would that mean the same thing today that it meant back then? No, it'd be really creepy, seriously. <laughs> We're a friendly church, pucker up, right? You know, it, 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 it would totally not. You know, it, and it's mentioned, it's commanded five times. Who'd you, all right, turn to the person, no, kidding, <laughs> What did it mean back then? It simply meant what? A, a warm, welcoming, friendly greeting, right? That's what it meant. Yeah. How, how do we apply that today, right? Right? You know, how, how do we do in the church? You know, we can shake hands. We can hug people, right? Try to smile. That's why we do that. Hey, take two to greet each other. Coffee is a way of welcoming people. You know, you come here, you have a cup of coffee. People say, hey, this is good, right? So what's the principle? How do we make people feel warm and welcome? And, and here's another one, another uh, now that I, your teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet, right? That's a specific command. Uh, is Jesus wanting, now you may want your neighbor to wash your feet or something, right? You know, right now. Um, but it's a specific command. But is that what Jesus is asking us to do? What did it mean back then? Right? See, if we do it today, and sometimes it means the exact opposite. I've seen people do this, wash people's feet, as a way of honoring them, Right? You know, you, you know, uh, you're awesome in, I don't know. Back then, you know what it meant? Hey, it just meant a guy was doing his job. <laughs> a guy was doing his job that no one else really wanted to do, right? That's what it meant. And so how do we go do, how do we go and do likewise? It's talking about acts of service, right? Acts of service, especially serving where people don't want to serve, right? Now, I know a guy told me that, that they went to a, a bunch of restaurants in their town and Got permission to clean the toilets, right? You know, and first it really freaked people out. Like, this is kind of weird, right? But it's just talking about, hey, how can you serve people? How can you serve the church, right? You know? And, and, and so you get beneath the, the command to the principle behind it. And, and listen to this. This is, this, is, this is good. That's good, too. Jesus said that. Next. This is the goal of biblical interpretation, to discover these principles and appropriately and humbly suggest actions that in our day will allow the body of Christ. <laughs> is there now? Hey, I'm going to start over. Understand. I, our communicator, understand this is the goal of biblical interpretation, 
To discover these principles and appropriately and humbly suggest actions that in our day will allow the body of Christ to live out these commands and principles in our everyday life and interactions, right? That's what we're trying to do. And the flow of application is this way. From our head, right? Renewing our mind to our heart, right? And then finally to what? To our hands. And hands are important, right? Because you start pouring a bunch of stuff in, right? And nothing comes out, that's not a good thing. You know, like spiritual constipation, right? It's, oh, I can't believe I said that. I did. I did say that, little cameraman, right? Right? It's, it's not a good thing. It's like the Dead Sea, right? It's just taking in and not giving out, right? And it just does not do us any good if it doesn't flow out of our hands. Check out this quote by Mark Moore. Simply put, we don't correct, simply put, we don't correctly understand the Bible until we do what it says. It does not to simply say that we can understand something intellectually and not obey it. I'm suggesting that true understanding involves existential involvement so that you don't correctly understand something until you practice it, right? I mean, I, I sat in driving school classes, right? But let me tell you, when I got on the road for the first time, that was a little bit different, right? I could have studied driving all day long, but when I got behind the wheel, it, it was a different thing. You can go to pre-married, premarital counseling, right? You can talk about marriage. You can go to seminars about marriage. You can take other married couples out, but not until you get married, right? Right, do you figure out, hey, this is what marriage is all about, right? Like biblically, we know that we're to pray for and love our enemies, right? But when we do it, it makes a difference. I, I, think, I always think of Martin Luther King Jr., right? Man, he practiced that, right? And he understood that loving your enemies a whole lot better than I did because he had a lot of enemies and he just prayed and he loved them. And all this brings us to the principle of obedience, which is the why behind it all. Application is the understanding of how you are to live out a particular passage of Scripture, right? And all that hermeneutics, right? All those principles help us get to, right? Oh, here's how I apply it. And obedience is what? Actually doing it. Actually applying it. If I can memorize the entire Bible and can read both Greek and Hebrew but do not apply it to my life, I know nothing. If I understand theology, philosophy, and sociology but do not live out those words in my life, I prove nothing. If I can fathom all the mysteries and solve all problem passages but do not love God or my fellow man better, I accomplish nothing. Gordon McPhee writes this, the Bible for all it's worth. We're convinced that the single most serious problem people have with the Bible is not with the lack of understanding, but with the fact that they understand most things too well. Problem with such a text as do everything without complaining and arguing, for example, is not with misunderstanding, but with what? Obeying it. Putting it into practice. And, and here, here's the deal. Here's the deal. If we do not apply and obey God's word, all our Bible study, all your Bible study is nothing but a waste of time. Just a complete waste of time. You could have been doing something else. Did you no good. Did me no good. 
And according to James chapter 4, it's a sin. He who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Not only that, if we do not obey the word of God, we do not love God. If you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teachings. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. If we don't obey God's word, we don't love God. If we don't obey God's word, we don't know God. First John, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, look at my t-shirt, my bumper sticker, my coffee mug. But does not do what he commands, is a liar. And truth is not in him. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. This is how we know we're living in him. And third, if we or you, so I, I mean, I mean if, if you don't obey God's word, you don't love God. <laughs> me too, okay? Because I'm talking to me as well as you. If you don't obey God's word, you don't know God. And if you don't obey God's word, you will never experience true freedom, the freedom that Jesus bought for you on the cross. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings... And he wouldn't say, hey, grab a scroll and hold on to it. <laughs> I'm holding to your teachings, Jesus. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, if you obey, if you live them out, then you'll know the truth, right? Because you're experiencing it. You're involved in it. And the truth will what? It'll set you free. You see, this book, reading it, studying it, understanding it, applying it, obeying it, right? It's how we get to know God. And this book, reading, studying, obeying, applying it, shows us how to love God better when we obey his commands. And and, and this book, right, reading, studying, applying, and obeying it will help us experience true freedom. Amen? And here's the deal. Some of us are free, Simply because we're not obeying it, right? There's freedom and obedience, right? There's knowledge and obedience, right? What a great book we have here. And I'm going to close with that favorite passage of mine about the, about the Word of God from Isaiah. As the rain and snow, See, see, God's purpose for his word is that you might love him, know him, and that, that you might experience freedom from him. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish springtime, so that you'll seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And when you read, study, obey, and apply, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. 
Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for everlasting sign that will endure forever. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we love you. God, thank you for your word. And God, I pray for all of us. God, that we might study, read, and apply and obey your word, that we might know you more, that we might love you better, and that we might experience the freedom your son bought for us on a bloodstained cross 2,000 years ago. Amen.